0: Everyone, uh, to this webinar organized by the People's Health Movement of South Africa. I'm James Van and one of the steering committee members of PHM. I'm just going to be moderating this event. For the sake of data, I'm not turning on my my camera because um, I know that there are a lot of people phoning in from different areas. We've organized this event just as a bit of a discussion space where there will be two speakers. Speaking briefly on on two points around the new Omicron uh, coronavirus variant. The first speaker will be Peter van Heersten, who is a bioinformatician and a member of the South African National Bioinformatics um, uh, organization. And he will be speaking about some of the science uh, of the new variant and what uh, is important for activists and community health workers um, on this call to know. We will then be passing on to Lauren Paramore, who will be speaking about some of the uh, political um, questions that have been raised by this new variant that has drawn a lot of attention in a way that some other variants have not uh, previously. So without further ado, and just to let everyone know that there will be time for questions and answers after this. Um, so do please post some of those questions in the chat or we will allow you to raise your hands after they've uh, both both our speakers have spoken. So, without further ado, could I hand it over to you, Peter?
1: Yeah, thank you, James. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Yeah, I'm a bioinformatician, so I work in the field of what's called surveillance, trying to pick up on these new variants as they're showing up. But so let's start with the virus, and I think everybody's seen this kind of picture before. So the virus is this really, really tiny ball. These things, this virus, the SARS CoV 2, as we call it, the one that causes COVID 19, is only about a one hundredth of the size of a human hair, even smaller than that sometimes. Okay. And it's covered in these things that we call spikes. They, they call them spikes, but to me, they look more like trees. So these little, and, and those are used to connect to our cells. So the virus is floating around there and if it bumps into the right kind of cell in our body it uses these spike things to kind of latch on and then it can get into the body and then when it does that it turns ourselves into a little virus factory uh, so it starts using our cells to make lots of copies of itself okay so what is it copying so if we you know inside the virus inside the ball Uh, there is a thing called the genome that that's it's it's a recipe book for how to make viruses so once it gets into the cell it uses this to make lots of copies of itself but when it's making these copies it's a bit like if you're taking a photocopier uh, and you're copying a document you know when you copy the document you don't make a perfect copy you know maybe there's a bit of dust on the photocopier or, or or something like that and if you look at a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, or if you're old enough to remember tapes, when we used to get copies of copies of copies of tapes, then um, the, uh, uh, the the viruses are a little bit different from each other when these copies are being made, okay? And inside every person who's infected with this, in other words, who's getting COVID-19, there are many, many uh, uh, copies of the virus floating around, you know, m- actually millions of them, okay? Uh, So because the copying is not perfect, that's how we get the so-called virus variants. So uh, it's a process that we call mutating, okay? And these virus variants form family trees. So, you know, here's a picture of a family tree. You can think of, you know, uh, somebody and their children and children's children, things like that. And just like with our human families, I look more similar to my mother and my father, then I look to my grandparents and my great, great, uh, my great parents, great grandparents and great, great grandparents look even more different. So as you go across generations, then the uh, virus starts looking a little bit different to what the original virus uh, looked like. Okay, And these changes that are happening, they're kind of random, but remember, this isn't um, happening on its own because all the time that this is happening uh, the virus is making copies of itself our immune system is fighting the virus and trying to kill that virus and um of all these different copies some of them will fight our immune system better than others okay and the ones that fight our immune system more, maybe the ones that spread from one person to another better than the other ones then um they Uh, start, you know, most of the viruses start looking like the successful viruses. And that's how we get what's called variants of concerns. Now, you've heard some of these names, Alpha, Beta, Delta, and now we've got Omicron, okay? And all of these so-called variants of concern are, are types of the virus. In other words, descendants of the virus, copies of the virus that have something a little bit different about them that makes health authorities worried, OK, uh, Delta is particularly well known for spreading um, better than uh, uh, um, <coughs> other uh, variants. And beta was known for fighting our immune system better. OK. And where are most of these changes happening? Remember, I talked about that thing that they call a spike, but I say it looks like a tree. Um, this. Uh, a spike is where a lot of the changes are happening so this is a picture of the spike just taken on its own without the rest of the virus and you see here it looks a little bit like a tree at the top here and this top part the top part of the tree is what connects to uh, our body when the virus is getting into us okay so when our body learns how to fight the virus or when we get immunized and therefore we're training our body to fight the virus it's really learning well how to fight this Spike okay, and it's going to try and stop the spike from doing its job of getting into our cells. Okay, now if we look at the thing that gets called Omicron, that's a version of SARS CoV 2 that has a lot of changes. It's not a great picture here, but these orange bits are all the changes that Omicron has on the spike. So at the top of the spike, the bit that starts connecting to our cells, Omicron has changed quite a lot compared to the original virus that we first saw last year. Um, And we think that those changes are going to let Omicron um, fight our immune system better, okay? Now let's just step back a little bit. We don't know exactly where Omicron came from. Uh, It's been found in a number of different countries. We do know by looking at the family tree and how different the different Omicron viruses are that this thing, arose about two months ago. So we think somewhere around the start of October, then the first Omicron version of SARS-CoV-2 was in somebody and it spread to other people and now it's spreading fast around, around South Africa, okay. But uh, we don't know whether it started in South Africa or Botswana or Nigeria or the Netherlands or somewhere else, we just know that it's here, and it's spreading and it's got all these changes here uh, uh, on the spike. And I said, our, our body is fighting this thing, and it's fighting this thing. The first way it fights it is a thing called um, antibodies. and antibodies are these tiny little particles that stick to the virus. so uh, you know uh, and, mo- and uh, very importantly they stick to the the spike and they stop the, the spike in the virus from being able to to, to to do its job. And once the virus is all like kind of stuck down with antibodies, then, uh, our, the rest of our body's immune system can come up and sweep up these disabled viruses and clean this thing out of our system. Okay. Um, but when the virus is changing, and uh, uh, you know, the viruses that are better able to fight our immune system, you know, they they're better fighting these antibodies and you know, many people have had uh, um, Many people have had COVID-19 in South Africa, uh, quite a few people have been vaccinated and now Uh, um, the virus is like really the ones that are fighting our immune system, they've got a better chance of succeeding. So we think that's why Omicron is is, is doing so well at the moment at, at infecting people. Okay. So if the spike changes enough, it can hide a little bit from, or more than a little bit from these antibodies. Okay. And if that happens, then you might get infected with Covid nineteen would we'll get the disease. Covid nineteen get infected with SARS CoV two, even though you've had Covid nineteen before or or you've been vaccinated. Okay, but this is not our only line of defense. Okay, the next thing that can happen if the if the virus gets past the first line of defense, these antibodies, there are these other cells in our body called T cells. And anybody who's dealt with HIV will have heard a lot about T cells. And what T cells do is they find the virus factories. Remember, I told you that if the virus gets into uh, one of our cells then um, it can turn that cell into a virus factory okay and what the t-cells do is they go find the virus factories and they shut them down okay and the uh, thing with this is that you you might then get infected with uh, COVID-19 but because the t-cells are shutting down the virus factories you wouldn't get very seriously sick and uh, and this is, um, you know, obviously good news. So Omicron might be able to get through the first line of defense, but almost certainly will not get past the next line of defense. Okay. And this is also very important that the infection starts here by your nose and your mouth, and then it goes down to your lungs. And um, because we've got an immune response from the vaccine, then the that can stop the um, infection getting deep into your lungs and uh, causing the kind of severe disease uh, or even death that we've seen. Okay, So there's a problem though, because if the virus is able to infect us, then it is still able to spread, even though we've been vaccinated. So we don't know how well exactly the vaccines will work against stopping infection. We almost 100% certain that they'll carry on working against stopping severe disease. But if the uh, vaccines are not working that well at stopping infection, then COVID-19 could carry on spreading even if we've got vaccinated people. So what So what can we uh, do next, okay? The one thing is that the vaccines that we've got at the moment, they're the so-called first generation of vaccines. Um, and there's lots of people working, and this is mostly not in the pharmaceutical companies. These are researchers working often in in universities or government labs, um, working on better vaccines. So they might make a vaccine that is a so-called booster. A booster vaccine, however, would be the same kind of vaccine given again. So in other words, uh, maybe six or eight months after getting your first dose, you get another um, dose of vaccine. And what that does is it increases the antibodies the, you know, the booster vaccine could increase the amount of antibodies we've got, and then that'll stop infection, you know, before it even gets a chance to start. But the other uh, approach that that uh, people are looking into is making new kinds of vaccines. So maybe vaccines that are tuned against some of these variants of concern like Delta or Omicron, and uh, then will be better at fighting these specific uh, uh, variants. Or maybe a vaccine that specifically targets your nose that the that you spray in your nose that can actually make you stop the infection before it even gets a chance to get going but the thing is this as as, as um we're gonna hear just now uh, from lauren the just because the vaccines are being made doesn't mean that we're gonna get them uh, because we know that up until now vaccines have been very unfairly distributed around the world okay so what other tools do we have? Obviously, one of the important ones is masks um, and uh, good quality masks that cover your nose and mouth and can fit nicely. Uh, but just like um, and with um, <coughs> vaccines, masks are also not evenly distributed. We don't all have equal access to them. And I mean, this is really unfortunate and because Masks can stop not only the spread of COVID nineteen, but they can help us stop the spread of diseases like tuberculosis, uh, influenza, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, because of uh, the other problem we have besides the fairness angle of masks is that uh, there's what we call stigma. That you know, when you're wearing a mask, people can think, "Well, you're only wearing a mask because you're sick." So then, people can react quite, 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 quite rudely to somebody. So this. So all the other tools we've got, so masks, staying away from each other when we're sick, getting access to tests so that we can find out quickly that we are sick, um, even showing up at hospital in time if we are seriously ill, these things are all facing the same problems of unfairness or uh, inequity in the health systems that we've got with the vaccines. So the uh, fighting to increase fairness uh, around health, and um, health provision is a crucial tool to stop COVID-19, okay? But anyway, so I think that's enough about, you know, what are these variants um, and a little bit of where they came from and how do they work and what can we expect from them? You know, we will learn a lot more about uh, the science of them in the next weeks. I mean, scientists are working incredibly hard. uh, Well, (laughs) actually, I'm one of them, but yeah, and and my colleagues are working incredibly hard to try and understand exactly uh, uh, what these new variants mean in terms of, uh, uh, the science but that will take a little bit of time um, but yeah let me hand over to Lauren at this point.
0: Thank you Peter. Um, before we hand to Lauren, uh, Lauren is a lecturer of political studies at the University of Cape Town and also a member of the People's Health Movement. She'll be speaking about the political narratives around the Omicron variant and more about uh, vaccine apartheid and some of the work going on there. Thank you, Darren.
2: Thanks, James. Um, and thanks, Peter, for setting me up so nicely speaking about fairness. And good afternoon to everyone. So, maybe one way to start is to just remember that today is World AIDS Day. And the, the theme for this year's World AIDS Day is End Inequalities, End AIDS. And I mention World AIDS Day because a lot of the struggles around access to medicines that we're fighting now with COVID 19 the same struggles that we fought um, during the 1990s for access to antiretrovirals. Um, And there's a similar kind of blockage, which is the unfairness in the world trade system, which I'll speak about uh, uh, in a bit, um, and particularly intellectual property rights. So uh, as Peter explained, vaccines work to prevent hospitalization and death. And that's why they're so important to ensure that everyone gets access to them. And they also help, to prevent mutations of the COVID-19 virus from emerging. Uh, And that's another reason why they're so important. And so then we have to ask ourselves, if all of this is true, why don't we have more equitable access to vaccines and particularly on the African continent? Um, Because you would assume that everyone would feel safer if more people have access to vaccines and there's less um, potential for variation to emerge. So I want to focus on a couple of reasons for the lack of vaccines, lack of access to vaccines, particularly on the continent. I think it's important to acknowledge that South Africa is a bit of an outlier. So we have a relatively high rate of vaccination. Um, But on the continent, I think we have 41 percent or so of people at least having one shot, two shots. it's, It's in the 20s. But on the African continent in general, there's only about 7% of people that have been vaccinated. So so the the continent uh, is in a crisis, uh, thanks to vaccine apartheid. And one of the key things that's causing this crisis is law, and particularly intellectual property law. Um, So intellectual property laws are known as uh, trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. uh, This is, in short, it's referred to as TRIPS. It's an intellectual property framework that's enforced by the World Trade Organization, and it allows companies to take patents on their inventions. So basically, this means that once they have a patent, they alone can decide who should make their products, how many to make, what they should cost, uh, how many they um, should sell in particular markets, and also who they should sell to first. Um, and even if these companies get a lot of public money to develop their products, or they use public facilities like labs or universities, or even when they have public employees like government scientists on their teams, uh, they can still take out these patents. And these patents basically allow them to privatize the knowledge that they generate. So to privatize the knowledge, for example, about how to make a COVID-19 vaccine. And they can do that um, even if they, like I said, use public resources. So government may, for example, give them um, an amount of money to assist with uh, vaccine development. And it's important to note that that government money is public in the sense that it's tax money. So it's generated through taxation. And we all pay uh, taxes when we purchase groceries, we pay taxes. Um, when we file our income statements, we pay taxes. So people across all class levels pay taxes. And despite that, um, the TRIPS framework allows companies to take out patents for a period of of 20 years. And it's very tough to challenge those patents. Um, And so what we've seen is that companies have used these patent rights to block anyone else from uh, getting the knowledge that they need to make COVID-19 vaccines or tests, which we need to track where the the virus is in the population, um, or medicines, uh, therapeutics that are needed to uh, manage the pandemic. And patents have even been used to block things like um, PPE, so something like a N95 mask that would be really effective in um, blocking vaccine particles from entering the body. All of these technologies are patented. Um, And so this is a key obstacle to managing the pandemic effectively, because it means, Whatever suppliers are out there that could make these vaccines, diagnostics, PPEs, um, are blocked from doing so, and that makes the pandemic persist, and it it makes it also more likely that viral variants will emerge. So, some examples about public money. In the US, there's a company called Moderna that's received almost $2 billion in public support for developing their COVID-19 vaccine, and then on top of that $2 billion, they received about another $8 billion. Uh, for um, whereby the, the U.S. government guaranteed that it would purchase Moderna vaccines should they prove successful, um, to the value of eight billion dollars. So let's uh, round that up to ten billion dollars that they've received uh, in public money. What's ironic is that the same company is refusing to let the U.S. government register as a fellow patent holder for their vaccine. So it means, therefore, that the US government doesn't have the legal right to produce a vaccine that it helped to finance, um, even though it invested so heavily in it. And therefore the, the supply of this Moderna vaccine, that's one of the most effective vaccines, remains limited. And it's an artificial limitation because if other people knew how to produce the vaccine, they could increase supply and increase supply would presumably mean more people have access to the vaccine and there's less likelihood for variants to emerge so again sticking to the example of Moderna um, in South Africa there's a company called AfriGen and they're trying to replicate the Moderna vaccine but the process is really really slow and partly that's because Moderna won't help them to replicate the vaccine by sharing the recipe that's needed to make it so again even though there's a lab on the African continent that has the capacity to produce a vaccine they're prevented from doing so, or at least slowed down um, from doing so by the patent holder. And so the vaccine supply remains artificially limited. Uh, And so it's important to note that the argument that there's no capacity on the African continent to produce vaccines, particularly uh, mRNA vaccines, um, is is not true. Um, The MSF access campaign has calculated that there are about seven um, sites on the African continent that could be used for mRNA production, uh, and that with tech transfer, they could be brought um, into operation and deliver vaccines within a period of months. Um, So again, we see patents being a a blockage, but not only patents, also um, the inability of even influential governments like the US to put pressure on companies like Moderna to share technology. Um, So there's also a way in which um, money and and power, so not just money, but money and power, the combination restricts access to, to vaccines. One of the places in which the Omicron variant has been picked up is Botswana. And Botswana, like other countries on the continent and in the global South, has struggled to get access to vaccines. So uh, one of the things to remember is that at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told that a system would be set up to make sure that there would be a fair distribution of vaccines, um, and the system was supposed to be administered by an institution called Covax, uh, and Covax was supposed to be the single buyer of vaccines, and it was uh, supposed to ensure that health workers everywhere would be the first to receive COVID nineteen vaccines, but Covax failed, and one of the big reasons why it failed was because countries like the USA, like Canada, um, made deals with vaccine suppliers, Uh, they made bilateral deals, and they basically pre-purchased the available vaccine stock for their own populations. And as a result, COVAX was unable to get access to the vaccines, Um, and therefore, by and large, the developing countries that had put their faith in COVAX couldn't get access to the vaccines. So This is one of the key causes of lack of access to vaccines during the early days of the pandemic. Uh, So then countries shifted to doing bilateral deals. So in other words, making deals directly with the pharmaceutical companies. And so this is one of the things that Botswana did. Um, And in July this year, they made a deal with Moderna to buy half a million doses of vaccines. So what's one of the reasons Botswana could do this? Uh, it could do this because there's a big diamond industry. Um, and together with the Beers, DevSona, and DTC Botswana, um, there was therefore a pool of money that uh, industry contributed, along with the government, to be able to purchase vaccines. And so in this sense, money does matter. Economic might does matter, right? Um, so at least Botswana had some resources to purchase vaccines. But again, there's a, a limitation of money and on money, and that's power. One of the things we see, for example, uh, in the case of Botswana is that they didn't really have the power to negotiate a very good price for the vaccines. So uh, they purchased vaccines at $29 a unit. Um, And in comparison, for example, the United States paid about $15 to $16.5 in Europe. Um, They paid about $23 to $26 per vaccine. So there is also a kind of limit that countries face. So one limit is can they purchase vaccines, uh, and that's determined by the amount of vaccine supply, but also whether countries have the economic power to purchase vaccines. Then countries, particularly on the continent, might have limited negotiating power in terms of um, the price at which they receive vaccines. Uh, and one of the the limits, of course, that they also face in regards to pricing is. That countries are not allowed to disclose to each other what they're being charged for their vaccine purchases often the drug companies the pharma companies ask them to keep this information secret um, but one of the big constraints is also in terms of uh, the power of the producer the patent holder and so in Botswana this played out um, in even after having purchased these vaccines which would only have brought the vaccination rate up to 10 percent of the population um Botswana was then hit uh, with uh, supply delays. So other countries jumped the queue, got Moderna vaccines before uh, Botswana did, uh, and their supplier vaccine was delayed, and this delayed their their vaccination program. So I'm using this uh, example because it illustrates, I think, that power isn't only about money. It's about all of these other constraints that that countries face. So... um, I think the key issue to keep in mind is that these supply issues are artificial. Uh, They can be changed by suspending intellectual property rights on COVID-19 technologies. Uh, But the obstacle to this is that a small group of countries are blocking this from happening. Uh, And so especially Germany, Switzerland, and the UK, um, the European Commission, which is the, the, the body negotiating against the TRIPS waiver at the World Trade Organization is blocking the waiver even though the European Parliament, which is the the popular body that represents the European people, has said that it supports the waiver. So one of the steps we need to increase access to vaccines is to lift uh, the intellectual property rights on vaccines, medicines, therapeutics, and diagnostics, um, in order to increase the number of manufacturers, manufacturers that can make these products and distribute them. But I think it's also to keep in mind, and I'm gonna close quickly, hopefully, that at the national level, we also need to keep encouraging people to wear masks, like uh, Peter said, to wash or sanitize their hands and also to get vaccinated. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that to wash our hands, we need water. Uh, And in many municipalities in South Africa, we're facing water crises. Johannesburg is just the biggest example of this uh, recently. And so in terms of kind of structural features that also drive the the pandemic, access to water, to clean water and sufficient water is is one of the drivers that we need to think about. Um, We need to boost our vaccination rate. um, But to do that, we need to invest in our public health system. One of the reasons people mentioned for being hesitant is that they're not sure they can access care if they have negative side effects. And so this is kind of, I mean, one could look at it as an assessment that uh, people have that they don't have reliable access to health services when they need it. And, and this is one of the stressful things to consider when, when they're trying to think about getting vaccinated. So we need investment in our public health system. Um, one of the things that's obvious is that to fight off any disease, you need a strong immune system. Um, and what we've seen in South Africa is that there are high rates of hunger, high rates of unemployment, high rates of poverty. And so that is a concern. Again, a, a kind of structural concern, um, a downstream driver of um, variant merging of being vulnerable to the COVID-19, to infection by COVID-19. So South Africa also needs to think about its food system um, as one of the key components of public health. Um, And then finally, maybe just to mention that, you know, vaccine apartheid isn't something that has a gender neutral impact. Um this past week, we've seen vaccine apartheid result in the stigmatization of many Southern African countries. Travel bans have been imposed to and from uh, South Africa, amongst others. And of course, one of the things we know is that the tourism sector is one of the big sources of employment um, and the service sector more generally. The majority of people in the service sector um, that, are, that are employed in the service sector, especially the, the low wage um. Part of that sector are women, and so what we're seeing with the travel ban with the travel bans is a destabilisation of women's access to employment uh, and this is particularly concerning because uh, it's been a two year period where that sector has been destabilised uh, and we saw yesterday that unemployment rates are higher than than ever, and that women during the pandemic have been disproportionately affected in terms of job losses. So that's the one part. But the other part about the gendered impact of the pandemic is that um, most of our health workers in the front lines are women. And so, again, if variants emerge that are resistant um, to the vaccines or can evade uh, some of the protective effects of the vaccines, that means, once again, that our health workers are put under pressure. um, And they're put under pressure in terms of risk of exposure, but also the stress and trauma of having to deal with um, death Um, But also the the stress and trauma of having to think about uh, the risk of exposing their own households to a COVID-19 infection. Um, So intellectual property rights in this way, it's, it's not gender neutral. It is actually something that actually exacerbates the worst inequalities in our society. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so important to address it. So I'll stop there and then hand back to James. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Darren, for that uh, analysis. I think that's very useful and for humanizing it at the end as well. I think that we have a number of questions in the chat that I will direct to both of the speakers and we'll cover some of them. And then perhaps if we have some time for hands also to be raised, that people can ask brief questions. So to Peter, uh, there's a couple questions uh, in the beginning about sort of what are the key things we need to know about this omicron variant and then what is it simply too soon um to say about it well some of m- the thinking today's this question about a lot of the science has been interpreted very interpreted very rapidly without real evidence um what are the things that we're still waiting to find out more about and what are the things that we can have some certainty about
1: um so yeah, so getting starting with Leslie's question, I've been like kind of going through all the questions in the chat. And and I mean, um, uh, uh, I think that we are not new to this virus anymore. So some of the mutations that we saw in, that we're seeing in, in Omicron, we've seen in beta before, and this is one of the reasons for concern, okay? Also, it's spreading really rapidly, and I mean, that that's another reason for concern. So even though the science has been developed very... Uh, uh, um. Rapidly around this variant, it's based on what we've learned during the twenty odd months of the pandemic. Okay, uh, so I, I um, and then the other thing is is that I think we're following. Um, you know, Mike Ryan, head of emergency response for WHO, has this saying: um, <clears throat> "Act fast, uh, no regrets." You know, uh, if we if we ended up acting too fast in terms of being concerned about Omicron awesome. That would be lovely, you know? Uh, and I won't regret having acted fast at all because acting slowly when you're facing a infectious disease outbreak, uh, is, you know, potentially opens you up to really, really big problems. Um, then in terms of what communities need to know, I think one of the things, and this relates to some of the comments about vaccine hesitancy. One of the things that people need to know is, is that this is part of the marathon that we've been fighting against this pandemic, um, all along. Okay. And, um, This is not a new virus. This is uh, SARS-CoV-2. This is COVID-19. We expect, although it's early days, we expect that the disease course will look very similar to what we've seen with uh, the pandemic thus far. Uh, But also uh, what's changed, I feel, uh, now in the last 20 months is that we're facing a much more intense onslaught of misinformation uh, in Uh, December 2021 than we had in December 2020. Uh, And I mean, there's two big reasons for that. The one is American politics and some extremely pro-capitalist factions that uh, have been going on for quite some time about that the pandemic isn't real. You might recall uh, Trump calling it just a little flu, nothing to worry about. So therefore, these people argue that um, uh, uh, we should... Uh, you know, stop all restrictions and basically get back to kind of business as usual. And on the other hand, uh, there are people who literally are trying to sell you something. So they're saying, don't take the vaccine, take my COVID cure. And I mean, I've even seen people selling a vaccine cure. Now they say, well, yeah, if you get vaccinated, you must take this special like kind of vitamin cocktail. So there are people with agendas who are spreading misinformation in communities. And this is a crucial thing to fight against at the moment. Um uh, just one last question before I stop talking uh, so what about all this booster story right? So we already knew that uh, your immune response in terms of the antibodies it does fade over time and many uh, vaccine regimens in the world are multi-dose regimens there's lots of vaccines that we get um, uh, th- that we get in you know multiple shots and it might be that the vaccines that we got we were told J&J is one dose. Maybe it works best as two doses, and everybody who got J&J should ultimately get a booster shot. Maybe with Pfizer, we ultimately need three three doses. It's still early days, and we're still learning a lot about um, fighting this virus and fighting this disease, but the um, the boosting, I don't expect it to carry on forever. I actually don't think this is going to be like flu where, where we need a shot. Every year, it looks like we're going to need a, a regime of shots and we need to t- t- tweak those. But the challenge is going to be getting everybody access and fighting those who are spreading misinformation about how we uh, should be fighting the, uh, uh, fighting the disease. Thank you, Peter. Perhaps, uh, Lauren, to bring you in here. Uh,
0: one of the questions in the chat from Melanie or statements is about how... The issue in South Africa is not only vaccine hesitancy, but it's about access uh, in in other ways than just having vaccine supply. Perhaps you could comment on some of the the challenges that uh, South Africa is experiencing it, with with regards to vaccine access in communities, based off a lot of the socio economic challenges. Thanks,
2: James. I mean, I think. Melanie has mentioned one of the big ones, which is transport, that uh, transport uh, isn't free and that it's expensive to move around in South Africa, especially if you've got no disposable income or very little. So you're choosing between, let's say, electricity and transport or food and transport. I think there are issues around transport also for people. You know, we assume that people are mobile and that they can get around easily. Uh, that that might not be the case, particularly for our um older community members who are particularly vulnerable to severe illness. Uh, So older people actually might require door-to-door visits. Um, You know, there are also uh, other factors that we need to keep in mind. One of the big ones is the problems that undocumented people have um, with accessing, not with accessing sites, let me say with trusting that when they go to a vaccination site, that they'll be treated respectfully one uh, and also that they won't be um, deported or somehow victimized so maybe the one part is um, people that are undocumented but are South African that there might be a level of fear about harassment or being turned away the other part would be people that are undocumented or that have identification documents but are non-citizens and that there's a fear for those people about being harassed and deported. And as we know, anyone that listens to the radio in South Africa um, has heard that, you know, there's extremely xenophobic kind of sentiments um, that are part of everyday discourse. And so those fears are understandable. Um, You know, something which I don't know if there's any research that's been done on it, but it's worth thinking about is gender dynamics within households. So uh one does wonder what happens when for example uh a female member of the household the wife wants to get vaccinated but the husband is against it um if if these kinds of uh, patriarchal gender dynamics might also have an impact on on people's sense of security um when they when they consider being vaccinated um And then, I mean, I think one of the the big failures has been the inability to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine rolled out. I think the hope was that it would service our rural areas. And to the extent that the supply of Johnson & Johnson has been constrained, that's had a big negative impact on on areas where the hope was that if you give a and j vaccine, it would be a once-off shot. And also that the storage um, issues would be easier to manage. And so that's
0: perhaps another constraint. So I'll stop there. Thanks, James. Thanks, Lauren. I see another question um, from Philip Mechanic in the in the chat about the rapidity of the identifying the vi- the variant and then it becoming named as a variant of concern by WHO. I don't know if anyone, Peter, perhaps would be able to comment on that sort of timeline. I'm not sure specifics of, of um, what goes into the naming of the variant of concern and the, the panel that does that, but perhaps um, Peter, you could at least comment on, on how this variant was able to be identified so so quickly and by uh, South African scientists.
1: Yeah, so um, <laughs> I don't know if people remember, but about two weeks ago, the NICD put out a uh, a message that it had identified a cluster of cases in Schwanhe Um, amongst students, Um, and uh, basically uh, what happened was that there was this university cluster, um, and the fact that there was this rapid expansion after we were – remember we were down to like 300 cases a day or something like that. The fact that there was a sudden rapid expansion um, made people at the NICD in South Africa kind of perk up, and the doctor who had um, uh, – you know, that was a lot of the – uh, students there were patients of this one particular doctor in Chwane. Um And then <laughs> they rapidly um, did this DNA sequencing to identify, you know, what this was. And it showed up as not being Delta. And this was very surprising because before then, you know, it, it had been Delta, Delta, everything was just Delta. okay, And then simultaneous to this, um, there's this, in the diagnostic test, the, the so-called PCR test, it started behaving differently. Some of them, this one manufacturer called Thermo Fisher, their test started having this particular um, change. Uh, I'm not gonna get into the technical details of it, but what that meant was that we could see that this um, Omicron was associated with a change in the PCR test. And by looking at what was going on with the PCR test, we could see that this thing was actually um, making up a large proportion of the um, test results Um, in multiple parts of the country and and that 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 this wasn't just oh this is a new variant but it's a new variant that is growing as a proportion of the cases very very fast and it's in multiple places in the country that raised all sorts of alarm bells then uh, it got taken to um the a committee on Virus Evolution, and basically to declare something a variance of concern, it has to be a certain proportion of the cases in the country. So this was, a, um, you know, it's, it was rapidly based on those tests, estimated to be 90% of the cases were uh, uh, Omicron, and that's how it got. Well, it was called Beaded nine, and then it got the name Omicron because uh, this thing had taken over in South Africa Uh, so fast. And now I know that when we started off, as I said, we were only getting about 300 new cases a day. So it started from a low base. Uh, But I mean, I think anybody who's looked at the figures uh, in the last week, um, I mean, if you're not concerned that the rapid growth of cases, then, well, why not? It it really is not looking good at this point.
0: Thanks, Peter. Uh, I will just read one of the last uh, statements in the chat because i do like the way it's been phrased from lucas moreno we had iec conducting special votes going to people's homes to get us to vote lives are much more valuable than elections i think we must rise as citizens and insist that government and business work together to get vaccines to the homes of the people if there are any of the participants who would like to raise their hand at this point and to ask a brief question they may do so uh, please try to keep it brief as we'll end by the end of the hour
2: James, I have a question for Peter, if I can abuse my position.
0: Sure, go ahead.
2: So, Peter, do you have any sense of whether this variant uh, alters um, considerations around vaccination for children?
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, uh, the well, actually, can somebody tell me what's going on at at Chris Honeyborough Hospital? Because... I saw the interview last night, and is it true that we are seeing such a high number of hospitalized kids? If it is, then, uh, yeah, Um, I think ultimately we have to think about vaccination for children, but that needs to go via the correct procedures of evaluating the evidence of uh, uh, benefits and risks, okay? We've said that this is not a serious disease for children, and that is true to some extent. But when we look at kids who end up in hospital, okay, that's a small proportion of children ending up in hospital compared to how dangerous this thing is for the elderly. But when they do end up in hospital, there's quite a lot of bad outcomes. So, I mean, when we say that this is not serious for kids, kids are not meant to die. You know, for a, a single child, even 10 children to die of something, that's, that's unusual, right? I mean, uh, um, we expect, like, kids to have long lives. So uh, if we are um, going to see this uh, pandemic continue, and it seems to be that, well, it's not stopping, we ultimately have to have vaccines for everybody. Um, But that needs to be done with testing for um, safety and, and all of those things. So I don't think, I think it's only Moderna has pushed um, tests in America down to, uh, I think they're recruiting now down to 18 months or something like that. And I know that one of the uh, Sinovac or one of those vaccines has also been tested in uh, younger kids. So yeah. And then of course, the other thing is that that kids do contribute to spreading this disease. So I think that ultimately we're looking at vaccines for all, and we might look at Uh, a a more complicated vaccine regime than we've got at the moment. In other words, um, I don't think we should assume that we are kind of one and done. So, you know, I hope everybody on the call has been vaccinated. Um, You might uh, be in line for another round of vaccines in the future. And I don't think that's anything to be scared about at all. Just one thing I'd like to say about this hesitance there as well, because besides transport issues, the other thing that I think we haven't addressed, and I think this speaks to what Lucas is saying, you know, somewhere towards the end of last year, President Ramaphosa went on TV and said that the future is in your hands. And I, I, I hate that. I hate this idea of individualizing the response. You know, when I went to get vaccinated in the public uh, sector, I mean, I didn't even walk out of there with a packet of uh, There, You know, if my job was like so many's job, uh, you know, piecework that depends on me being fit and healthy every day, and now I'm out of action for a day or two because of vaccine side effects, I might consider that, look, you know, uh, I can't go work on the boarding side tomorrow if I get vaccinated, that's food that I'm not putting on the table and I might avoid the vaccine because of that. So we really have to think more about, you know, what is an equitable response, not just in terms of challenging Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, we absolutely have to do that, but what does an equitable response to the pandemic look like on all levels, including supporting people Post vaccination.
0: Thank you, Peter. I see a hand from Nimi Hoffman. Please go ahead.
2: Hey, um, thank you. I just wanted to ask I think both Lauren and Peter, um, you know, you've made a very powerful case around also the social determinants of health, and we've seen massive budget cuts to health over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, this is only going to look, those cuts are only going to get stronger. And all really meaningful talk about the national health insurance system is now like off the table. Is there like thinking around, you know, reconnecting the pandemic to massive budget cuts and to the socialization of healthcare and the ending of segregation in healthcare services? Uh, what can I say? I, I mean, so it's not. Feasible and it's not just, it's not feasible as a matter of practicality and it's not just to uh, undertake budget, budget cuts uh, in the context either of a pandemic or even if the pandemic didn't exist uh, in the context of South Africa as it stands. The health system is highly inequitable. I think the government has a lot of work to do in terms of um, reinvesting in the, the, the subsidization or full sponsorship. Uh, of nurses training, so the NSFAS support for nurses was cut in the middle of a pandemic. Um, there has been a long struggle, long-standing struggle by community health workers to be recognised as uh, public sector employees and to be given decent wages and dignified conditions of work. Um, I think you know one of the things. That was recommended a couple of years ago by the health market inquiry is to regulate the private sector in health, um, which overcharges and over-treats. Uh, and so, I mean, they were not even speaking about decommodifying healthcare. It's a kind of much more limited reformist intervention of, of regulating the practices that um, disadvantage so-called consumers, and nothing's been done on that front. I just think you know it's indefensible to invest in a in a program of austerity budget cuts. There has been uh, an argument that the government uh, tried to make that uh, you need to suppress public sector wages because uh, it's unfair to, um, to to give wage increases to public sector workers when so many people are are suffering. Um, and and then there's an argument that was made by AIDC, for example, that that Reasoning is fallacious because, in fact, we depend on public sector workers to provide services, and so to the extent that the ability to work is impeded, service provision will also be impeded. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to hand over to to Peter.
1: I mean, we've only got a few minutes, but I I don't. No people realize it, but at least about almost seventy countries have spent more money on debt repayments—that in other words, paying off the government debt—than they spent on COVID nineteen response during this pandemic. So, I don't know where we are sitting with the the, the figures, but uh, you know, when we're talking about the African continent as a whole, um, the <coughs> the high income countries have been able to spend um, quite a lot of money on responding to COVID nineteen and. Uh, they've done this through boosting their testing regimes, to boosting their health regimes, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, meanwhile, we're sitting with countries that are not getting any support, not getting any meaningful financial support to bolster their economies. Um, you know, so when they imposed the travel ban on South Africa and effectively, like, really kind of cut our tourism industry off on the knees again during this, um, I mean, during this kind of Christmas period. There was no suggestion from the G7 or the G20 countries to say, okay, look, for a reason of safety, we're going to restrict travel, but we are going to give this extra funding to countries to compensate for that. So, yeah, so it's um, it's tremendously unjust how the pandemic has played out in rich versus poor countries. But, yeah, let me hand back to James um, because we're almost at the top of the hour.
0: Thank you, uh, Peter and um, Lauren. I think that we unfortunately have to call quits on this particular webinar just for the time that we uh, said it would go on for. Uh, But I would like to thank both of the speakers for their time and for their time in answering questions. I would also like to thank the participants for uh, giving an hour uh, in your week to listen to this. And if there are further questions, they can also be directed to PHM uh, South Africa. We will be having future webinars in future uh, on a number of different topics as we, as we do. Perhaps just if there's a last uh, word or comment from either of the speakers, they can go ahead now.
2: Um, nothing from me except to say, uh, get vaccinated and try and support as many people, especially 50 plus or those with comorbidities to get vaccinated. Thanks, James.
1: Yep, same for me, wear your mask, get a good, as good a quality mask as you can get, get vaccinated, get as many vaccines <laughs> as they'll, they'll give you, um, and and just uh, continue, you know? I mean, uh, Louis is commenting as well in the, um, in the chat, this is a crisis on top of a crisis. We've seen billionaires uh, uh, becoming richer during the pandemic. And I mean, you know, that's the structural cause to a lot of the health problems we have. Um, thank you, over. Thank you, then, to
0: everyone. I think that's going to be the last word on any PHM events over the next while. Please go get vaccinated. Please get your loved ones vaccinated. Thanks for all your time.